0: Never before in our lives has there been as much animosity toward Bible-believing Christians than there is today. A nurse fired for offering to pray with her patients. A Christian ministry kicked off a college campus for asking that their leaders be Christians and a continual social media firestorm of vitriol aimed at anyone who would dare to speak of a biblical morality. Sometimes it can feel like our whole world is turning against us. Well, what if it is? What do you do? When your world turns against you. That's what I'd like to talk about this evening. If you have a Bible with me, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. Paul is now on his third missionary journey, but he has come to the city of Ephesus and God has opened up such an amazing door of ministry that in our text today, He's now in His third year of life and ministry in Ephesus. And as we pick up the story today, we are about to see that God is at work in ways that are hard to even imagine. Acts chapter 19, and we begin tonight with verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Wow. This is some wild stuff. Paul was there as a tent maker and apparently the aprons that he would wore or his handkerchiefs could literally be taken by the believers from him and given to someone who's sick or demon possessed and they were healed and the demons would flee. Now, this is incredible. In fact, the way that Luke records this in verse 11 is he says, extraordinary miracles, extraordinary miracles. But what is a miracle? You know, we overuse that word like crazy. We tend to think of it as when something highly improbable takes place. Like maybe a real underdog hockey team overcomes a vaunted foe. We call it a miracle. But that's not a miracle in a biblical sense. A miracle in Scripture is when there is a superseding of the natural laws by the power of God, which means that any miracle is by its very nature extraordinary. So what is Paul saying in 1911? In essence, what he's saying is the extraordinarily extraordinary is taking place. It's hard to even comprehend, but notice how Luke began the verse. He said, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You see, this is not normative. It wasn't back then. It certainly isn't today. Paul was no huckster hawking product on an infomercial or the internet. And this harkens back to Jesus in, in Luke 8, when the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years believed that if I just touch him, I will be healed. And she was. And that's not the only instance. Mark fourteen thirty speaks of many people begging just to touch the fringe of his robe. And it says all who touched it were healed. And this reminds me of Acts 9 when God was doing extraordinary miracles through Peter just before the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And now we see him doing the same through Paul as God establishes this powerful beachhead and outpost for the gospel in the city of Ephesus. So again, we seem to see these kind of miracles taking place at selected moments when God is advancing the gospel in world-changing ways. This is one of those moments. We ended last week with 1910 in which Luke said, all who lived in Asia, not the continent as we understand it today, but the province of Asia back then, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks and in Luke nineteen uh, ten, we recognize the spread of the gospel that was going out from Ephesus. In fact, many scholars believe that all seven of the churches that are named in Revelation 2 and 3 were established out of this ministry in Ephesus during this period. And of course, the book of Ephesians, which continues to impact people all over the world, came about because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus and his love for the people there. So clearly, God was doing the extraordinary because he was using this ministry in Ephesus. There's one other possible reason for why God was doing the extraordinary. Commentator R. Kent Hughes calls Ephesus the dark castle of Asia Minor. It's because in this city there was so much emphasis on magic and power. Last week, Brian introduced us to uh, Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians, and attached to her were certain symbols which had been turned into magical formulas. So here in Ephesus exists a culture steeped in dark and demonic practices. Thus, God shows forth the truth of his genuine glorious power to heal, to free, and to transform. But invariably... When God is doing the extraordinary through his genuine servant, imposters will create great confusion by seeking to copy and counterfeit these things for their own glory and for the influence uh, increase of their own influence and power. And that's exactly what we see right here beginning in verse 13 but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief chief priest, were doing this. So these guys see what's happening. They see the incredible impact, the ministry that God is doing through Paul. And they say, hey, we want to get in on this. And they go out and they begin, as Luke says, to attempt to bring about miracles through the naming of Jesus. But notice, not only does Luke say just that they attempted, but he describes them as adjuring them by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. They are trying to use a name of the one they don't even know. And who are these seven sons of Sceva? It's interesting that nowhere in Jewish annals of history is there a chief priest who was named Sceva. So it's possible that he was related to someone from Palestine and had been sent to this part of Asia Minor by the Jewish authorities. But it's just as likely that this is a self-proclaimed title, that he has taken that on. And therefore, if that's the case, then these arrogant sons of a self-proclaimed chief priest are, through self-promotion, seeking to grow in power and influence by trying to copy the work of God that's taking place through Paul. Can you imagine what a mess that would make What confusion it would cause within the culture in and around Ephesus. How that could make a problem for the authentic gospel with these counterfeits from the cocky who are creating confusion. So what does Paul do about it? Does he confront them? Does he spend his time telling people their counterfeits? Does he send his disciples out to correct the confusion? How does Paul stop it? He doesn't. Luke records nothing of a response or action by Paul. Apparently, Paul just kept focusing on what God had called him to do. And he let God take care of clarifying who actually spoke for and served the living and powerful God of all. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? What an important question. Who are you? The demons knew Jesus and trembled and they knew even about Paul, God's chosen instrument, but who? were these seven sons of Sceva? Who were these ones who were seeking to use the name of Jesus whom Paul trusted while never actually even believing in the Jesus that Paul proclaimed? And that question from the mouth of the demon is an important one for us today as well. Who are you? You may remember that this past summer, I challenged us to consider that a more important question is not who are you, but whose are you? For none of us is great in and of ourselves. But when we come to know Christ and when we choose to live life trusting and depending upon Christ, everything changes. For he is life, he is Lord, he is good, he is God. And may I never forget that there is nothing great about Jeff. And there is nothing powerful, sufficient, or even able about the name of Jeff. But genuinely knowing and depending upon Jesus, that changes everything. And these sons of Sceva were about to find out just how real is the difference between being in Christ... And being a self-promoting counterfeit seeking to use the name of Christ. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. These cocky counterfeits who were creating confusion got the beating of their lives. They were literally stripped naked and fled to the streets and everyone saw it. Verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Not only are these county cocky counterfeits being beaten and humiliated, but also all of the people are humbled and sobered, and God is honored, and Jesus is magnified. Notice that Luke speaks of all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. God turns the confusion caused by these counterfeits into something that will bring him glory and advance his mission. And what's more, the impact on those who know Christ is deep and significant. Verse 18, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and they began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. When followers of Christ see the extraordinary glory of God and the reality of the power of evil, the response is repentance and a more wholehearted devotion to Jesus. But you know, many today, believe little in the power and the goodness of God. And many today, even many believers, do not believe in the reality of Satan or the power of evil. In our enlightened 21st century human perspective, we have sought to eliminate both the need for God and the so-called foolish fear of evil. But in Ephesus The dark castle of Asia Minor, they were seeing all too clearly just how real both are. And it leads from confusion to clarity, forcing them to make significant choices about their life and followership of Christ. And verses 18 and 19 show this heart repent uh, response of the followers of Christ. They kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices and bringing magic books and burning them in front of everyone. They are moved to follow Christ. And verse 20 says that all of these things resulted in the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing. You know, it's a, It's a bit ironic that this text happens to hit our calendar on the weekend when our country celebrates Halloween. Now, let me be clear. I do not believe that for most of us, Halloween is about a love for evil. Might be about a love for candy. Certainly for our kids, it's also a great opportunity to engage with our neighbors and to reach out to them with the love of Christ. But do we even realize or see that there's a dark side? Doesn't it seem strange that what is celebrated by so many in our country is darkness and death and evil? And while it's certainly good to enjoy our freedom of Christ and, of course, to reach out with love to our neighbors, it's also important. To search our hearts to be sure that what we observe at Halloween is not celebrating for us what is actually evil. For we are called to glorify God who is light and life, not darkness and death. And as the sons of Sceva and all the people of Ephesus discovered, evil is no joke. It is real. And God's call to his followers is that we rid ourselves of anything that is not In accordance with his will. Well, next, Luke begins to foreshadow a significant change that's about to come in the life of Paul and in the advancement of the gospel. Verse 21 Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So the Spirit is beginning to prompt Paul that it's time to move on. And he gives a glimpse of what's lying ahead. And he wants to go back through Macedonia and Achaia. And then he wants to go to Jerusalem. And eventually wants to go all the way back to Rome. And he sends out Timothy and Erastus ahead of him. But before Paul leaves Ephesus, and before Luke moves on in the story, Luke tells us about one more challenging chapter in the ministry. Verse 23, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Don't miss what he just said there. Our prosperity depends upon this business. That is a key insight into Demetrius' heart and motive. Verse 26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Note that even Demetrius, An unbeliever says in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable number of people saying that God's made with hands are no gods at all. The threat is real. In Luke 19.10, we said all of Asia, all the people, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And in Luke 19.19, as we see the church coming forward in repentance, we are told that when they brought forth all of this magic stuff and burned it, the price of them found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That value would be enough to pay one person in Ephesus' daily wage, Every day, seven days a week, for 137 years. In today's value, that would be in excess of $4 American dollars. And that amount of money underscores just how many people were coming to Christ. This was no small thing done in a corner by a few. The economics of verse 19 show the powerful and widespread impact of the gospel. And isn't it ironic that at the very time Demetrius and crew are claiming the greatness and superiority of Artemis, they are legitimately terrified of her losing her place of influence. But if Artemis is actually a great and powerful God, shouldn't she be able to take care of herself? Likewise, why is it that we, as followers of Christ seem to be afraid of God losing his place of influence in our country. Do we really think that he is shaken and afraid? And that by fighting against unbelievers, we'll somehow ensure his stature? Are we afraid that the greatness of our God is under threat? Or do we realize, do we truly believe that he is God and he is never shaken, never threatened, and quite capable of displaying his greatness no matter what people do? Unbelievers or us? Verse 28. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they'd come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a scene, what a terrifying scene. Here we see in verse 29, they grab Gaius and Astarchus who are friends and ministry partners of Paul and they take them into this theater and the whole city is rushing in with one accord and we see in verse 32, it is a picture of chaos. Some are shouting one thing, some are shouting of another. Most don't even know why they're there, but it is volatile and it is very dangerous. And the Jews put forth Alexander to give a defense of the Jews and likely to throw the Christians under the bus. But when they find out he's a Jew, they shout him down. And thankfully, God does not allow him to do that. And they begin to cry out with a single outcry for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Some years ago, I went to Ephesus. And here are a few pictures That I took and I was amazed to walk into this theater, which still exists and to walk around it and realize that this thing held nearly 25,000 people. And I looked about this theater and then I sat down by myself right in the middle of it and I read Acts 19. Imagining this scene unfolding as thousands and thousands of people formed this angry mob. And I came to realize this was no small threat to the church. This was a big deal. So, what do you do when your whole world turns against you? We'll come back to that. But first, let's see how things played out in Ephesus. Verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session. Pro councils are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After, the assemb- after saying these things, he dismissed the assembly. Incredible. In verse 35, we read this speech from this person who's called the town clerk, Now, when we picture that, we probably picture some sort of an accounting nerd with a little visor and a pencil, but that's not what this means. This person was a leader. He was the leader over the city, probably a city manager, or some would call him a chancellor, and he was a statesman. And this address recorded by Luke, this was not a spontaneous reaction. After all, what were the leaders of Ephesus doing for two hours while the people were shouting? Surely they were getting to the bottom of the situation. They were figuring out how did this get started and who started it and what are the issues and what are people upset with? And they were planning a masterful strategy and statement. And in verses 35 and 36, he starts out with a skillful appeal to take the heat out of the situation. In essence, he says, if Artemis is great and you all know it because everyone knows it, then what's the threat? Why are you so worked up? We need to calm down before we do something dumb. In verse 37, he brings another argument. There's not even a legitimate crime. They're not robbers of temples. They're not even blasphemers of Artemis. In verse 38, he calls Demetrius and his crew out by name. He says, I know who started this. And he points them to the courts. And he says there's also an appeals process. That's the pro-councils. And he says, if you cannot get what you want there, in verse 39 says, you can even appeal to the assembly and have the law changed. So he points them to the proper process. And then it culminates in verse 40 where he drops the hammer with the not-so-subtle threat of trouble for them. For Rome did not tolerate riots. And he says, we need to calm down before we do something dumb and dangerous to us. And then in verse 41, he, he, the assembly is dismissed and they all go home. Wow. So what do you do when your whole world turns against you? Well, what did Paul And the believers in Ephesus do when the city turned against them. Pretty interesting to consider. You know, we said there in verse 29, it's clear this is a threat and attack on the church. And they pull Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater. And verse 30 tells us that immediately Paul, out of heroic love and being an activator, wants to go right into the theater He wants to run to the defense of his brothers whom he loves. He knows their very lives are in danger. But verse 30 tells us that Paul did not go into the theater because he was dissuaded from doing so by the disciples who would not let him. Verse 31 tells us some of the Asiarchs who were leaders from different parts of the province of Asia who happened to be in in Ephesus and who were Paul's friends, they were repeatedly sending messages to Paul urging him to not venture into the theater. And I wonder, what would have happened if Paul had gone headlong into the theater in Ephesus? We know clearly from the text who they were mad at. It was Paul, this Paul, who has changed all of these people in Asia. And Paul, the activator in heroic love, wants to run in and rescue Gaius and Aristarchus, and he wants to be in the arena and make a difference. But what if he had gone in? As volatile and dangerous as this crowd and this scene is, it's highly likely that that would have been Paul's last day and the end of his gospel ministry right there and then. Paul was an activator. Paul was in no way passive. So why didn't he go into the theater? Because Paul chose to be willing to submit to those who were normally called to submit to him. That's what the church is all about. Helping one another when we've lost our head, when we are about to do something really dangerous and stupid. Paul's disciples step up and they say, no, do not go. And Paul submitted to the church. Paul also listened to the wisdom of other leaders. In verse 31, these Asiarchs are giving these appeals, and they are wise leaders, and they are saying, Do not go into that theater. Paul submits to the church, and Paul listens to the wisdom of others, and he restrains himself no matter how difficult it was. So, what do you think they did then? I cannot help but imagine that for two hours they hit their knees. And they did what they could do, and that is cry out to the God of heaven for deliverance. And I do not think it is a stretch to say that while this city leader is planning this speech, the church is praying and God is intervening. And this is a timely word for you and I as followers of Christ in America today. For it sure seems like the world is turning against us. And there may be very real threats that come our way. And make no mistake, God does not call us to passivity or indifference. Paul was anything but passive. And sometimes God calls us to be engaged. At the same time, our text today is a pretty stark reminder that sometimes what we need to do is simply to actively trust God and depend upon Him to show up and protect His honor, our ministry, perhaps someday even our lives. Friends, who did God use to quell the anti-Christian riot in Ephesus? Who did He use to thwart the attack of these greedy cowards who were creating chaos was it the apostle? Was it the church? No. It was a pagan diplomat. And who did God use earlier in the chapter to protect the ministry from the jealous counterfeits who were creating confusion? The apostle? The believers? No. God actually used an evil demon to accomplish his purpose. Wow. Did you get that in our text today? We see counterfeit ministers creating destructive confusion and cowardly idol worshipers creating dangerous chaos. But in both situations, it is God who comes to the rescue of his church, his people, his mission and his name. He uses an evil demon and a pagan diplomat to not only clear up threatening confusion and quell dangerous chaos, he uses them both to increase the glory of his name and advance his mission to bring the good news to those who are without God and without hope. And by the way, when I was in Ephesus, I also went to the temple of Artemis. This great Artemis of the Ephesians who inspired such devotion from the followers of Demetrius and who was so securely great according to the confident city clerk. Well, here are a few pictures of what's left today. This great temple that was 60 feet high and larger than a football field has been reduced to utter ruins. And the only temple patrons that I found there were dozens of turtles in a dirty swamp. And no one anywhere worships or proclaims this great goddess. Demetrius was actually spot on. Verse 27, we are in danger that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And that is exactly what happened. And what about the awesome God who did that? What about the one that we think is somehow under threat and under attack in America today? Well, his glorious goodness still rings out from this ministry in Ephesus all over the world through Acts 19 and through the entire book of Ephesians, thousands of years after the counterfeits and the cowards sought to undermine his message and his mission. God is God. So what are we afraid of? Again, I am not saying that we are to be passive, but I am saying that sometimes the call of God is simply to trust him and let God be God. It was true at times for Moses, for Joshua, for Jehoshaphat, for Hezekiah, For Paul, throughout scripture and throughout history, God has shown that he is able to bring about deliverance for his people and glory for himself. And sometimes he calls us to fall on our knees in prayer and then simply be still and trust him as he shows his power in surprising and amazing ways. In our text today, Counterfeits sought to create confusion, cowards sought to create chaos, both real threats to the church. But Paul and the followers of Jesus chose to trust God and stay on mission. That's our calling as well. We need to choose to trust God and keep serving him in these challenging days. And when we do, Well, we get to be along for a pretty amazing ride as he shows himself to be a truly amazing God. Hey, by the way, why did the sons of Sceva attempt this counterfeit ministry? It was because ruinous envy and pride in their souls led to self-promotion, ending in their humiliation Why did Demetrius and the silversmiths create this dangerous riot? It was because ruinous fear and greed in their souls led to self-protection ending in their shame. So I'm wondering, what is it that drives your decisions? Where is your trust. For sandwiched in between these messes is this beautiful picture of repentance in verses 18 through 20, of laying aside that which is ruinous to our souls. And I want to ask you tonight, what do you need to lay aside? Envy? Pride? Self-promotion, lust, greed, self-provision, fear, self-protection. What dark castles in your heart and your world are keeping you from the freedom that could be yours? The freedom to experience the goodness of God. The freedom to bring his glory and joy to others in a dark world. Ephesus was called the dark castle, but God turned it into a brightly shining light. How might he want to do the same right here in Lincoln? How might he want to transform ruined souls and bring light and hope and truth to a dark world? How might God want to write a story that will shine and proclaim his glory and goodness for thousands of years to come? Well, the key for us is just as it was for them. It is choosing to truly trust in him. Not only for the forgiveness of sins and salvation, but also every single day in every way. It is letting him be God. It is letting him determine our position, platform, and influence. It's letting him be our provision. It is trusting him for our protection. And it is laying down at his feet whatever we are wrongly trusting in and loving that is ruinous to our souls. Today I want to close by giving you an opportunity to consider where your trust truly is. Is it in you, your position, your power, your possessions, your ability to protect yourself and those you love? Or is it in him, moment by moment, day by day, trusting Christ for your life and with your life? And second, I wanna encourage you to consider Whatever it might be that is in your life that is ruinous to your soul. Like the people in Ephesus, when they saw the greatness of God and the reality of evil, what do you need to bring forward and lay down and surrender at his feet? Is it pride? Envy? Lust? Greed? Fear? unbelief, whatever it is, I encourage you in the quiet of these next moments to lay it down, to burn it at his feet that it may no longer have the power to ruin your soul and darken the light of your life. Let's take a few minutes. Let's bring our hearts and lives before our amazing God in his oh-so-good throne of grace. Oh, great God. How we thank you that we do not talk to the air in this moment. We We come before the great God of the heavens. The God who made all of the universe and the earth. The God who made us and knows us and sustains us. God, I don't know how we do life in this terrifying and troubled world without trusting in you. Oh, how we need a rock, how we need a refuge, how we need a high tower to hide in, how we need a God to cling to, and you are good, good, you are God. Your throne is established and it will never be shaken. We choose to trust in you. We put everything about our lives, our hope, every day and all of our future in your hands. We lay our hearts at your feet. We say thank you for being God. We choose trust in you in Jesus name we pray Amen